From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Criminal charges are possible in the case of Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters. A grand jury is looking into her handling of elections. Then, what's the best way to launch half a dozen mini-satellites into orbit at once? And by mini, we mean... The size of a loaf of bread to about the size of a microwave. Turns out packing them onto a rocket aboard a 747 works well. And later, a new year often brings resolutions to exercise more. Might pot help? You need a certain base level of health to access the runner's high, unless you have cannabis. Cannabis can induce the runner's high faster. Denver journalist Josiah Hesse joins us. In a new book, he profiles athletes and researchers on the cutting edge of this still controversial question. I give to CPR because it's just a great thing to support, especially during the pandemic. I felt it was important to pitch in my part. My day is not complete without CPR. And it's my pleasure to be able to give back. We are so grateful to our members who choose to be a part of Colorado Public Radio's community of support. Your donations strengthen the foundation for fact-based journalism and music exploration in Colorado. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado's Secretary of State announced today she's moving ahead with a lawsuit to prevent Mesa County Clerk and Recorder, quarter, that is, Tina Peters, from overseeing this year's elections. This news comes as the case against Peters enters a new phase. A grand jury will weigh possible charges in an election security breach. And those are not the only developments in this story. So here to catch us up is CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland. Hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. Let's talk about the lawsuit in a moment. But first, it's been about six months since news first broke of this breach. Clerk Peters allegedly allowed an unauthorized person to access Mesa County's voting machines in an attempt to find evidence that the 2020 election was rigged, uh, which it was not. What does this mean now that there's a grand jury involved? Going to a grand jury was the decision of the local district attorney in Mesa County and Colorado's attorney general. And their offices and the FBI have been investigating Peters since this started. The grand jury will weigh allegations of tampering with election equipment and official misconduct by Peters. It's essentially an investigative body made up of private citizens who are supposed to be impartial, and they will do their work in secret, which prosecutors said is to ensure fairness. I talked to the DA, Dan Rubenstein, last fall. It's the rare case that that facts are not disputed. I think there are some facts which will be disputed, but the vast majority of them uh, will come down to whether or not Tina had the authority to do these things. I imagine that she believes she does have that authority. That's right. Yes, absolutely. Peter says everything she did is legal for a clerk to do, and she stands by her actions. I have attempted to investigate the results of the elections, a duty that uh, I have to my constituents. The only thing Peters says she was not involved with was leaking this information from the Dominion voting machines online. And you may remember that's how this whole situation first came to light. Pictures of the machine's passwords were posted online, followed by copies of the hard drives. Has Peters responded to the grand jury news, Benta? Her lawyers are asking for a chance to present the jury 
not with just a defense of Peter's actions, but also with information that was downloaded from the voting machines, which they claim shows that a software update in the spring destroyed election records. Peters said in a statement, quote, I believe the grand jury has a right and duty to see the same evidence that I have. The evidence appears conclusive that Secretary of State Jenna Griswold's office violated federal and state law in destroying our county's election records last May. I I would like to note that election IT experts have said the files that were deleted were not election records. There was an ability to even to back those up. And it doesn't show that anything improper has happened. And again, state audits show that there were no irregularities with the 2020 election. Meanwhile, another election is looming. Peters was blocked by a court from overseeing last year's Uh, We mentioned that Secretary of State Jenna Griswold's moving forward now with a lawsuit to block Peters from overseeing this year's. And there's another development just this morning. Sort this all out for us, Benta. Yes. So this lawsuit from the state is expected to be filed today. Um, Griswold says she's filing it because Peters wouldn't agree to security protocols from the state. So what happened was Griswold wanted Peters to agree to some terms if she was going to be involved in administering this next 2022 midterm fall election. Mm-hmm. And Griswold wanted Peters to sign this order agreeing to do a whole host of things. So send the state a log of all the records of the card swipes of the people who entered the Mesa County Election Office. And then Peters would have also been required to send the state every day all her written communications related to her election work. Um, She would have been banned from being near the voting equipment unsupervised. So there were other stipulations as well, but those are a few of the big ones. And has Peters just not agreed to do those things? That's correct. Peters declared that there was no way she would sign this order or agree to any of these terms. She compared the requirements to George Orwell's 1984. And Griswold said failure to comply is grounds for legal action, and she's going to be taking that action. So it will end up in Mesa County District Court. And later today, the Grand Junction uh, Sentinel just reported that the Republican County commissioners in Mesa are planning to pass a resolution to make uh, to disqualify Peters from overseeing the next election. So um, a, a lot of developments and to make it even more complicated in the okay. midst of all this. Yes. <laughs> um, Peters held a rally last week to announce her bid for reelection this coming fall. So she's campaigning. She's got opponents running against her. Just some of the many elements to this story. Yes. And so the pressure is coming from the grand jury, from the secretary of state. And now, as you say, the Grand Grand Junction Daily Sentinel reporting that the board of commissioners now intervening. Benta, thank you for keeping us up to date on this. Thanks, Ryan. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland with an update on the saga of the Mesa County uh, election security breach. And a quick program note while we're on the subject of elections and politics, we're going to tape our regular interview with Governor Jared Polis today. That will air tomorrow on the show. A 747 took off from California's Mojave Desert last week, and when it reached cruising altitude, a rocket dropped from under its wing and roared into space. Inside were seven satellites. Virgin Orbit was behind this mission, and Denver area native Nicole Lewis is launch director. Nicole, thank you for being with us. No worries. Uh, This airplane method works for launching smaller satellites, not big, heavy ones. What types of satellites are we talking about? 
So we're launching what we call CubeSats into orbit. Uh, they're about the size of a loaf of bread to about the size of a microwave. Um, and it, yeah, it works really well for us to put our small launch vehicle on the wing of a 747 and air launch it. The size of microwaves, are they also quite powerful satellites? I mean, do they do the job of bigger ones or they just do less? Um, a lot of satellites are getting smaller in the same ways that phones and cameras and other technology is getting smaller. So we're taking advantage of the trend in, in tech as well okay. um, and are able to do a lot of with a small volume. I understand this is a mix of both uh, U.S. military and private sector satellites, correct? That's correct. Yeah, okay. we had a combination of satellites from the government and uh, the commercial sector. Okay. Virgin Orbit is one of the companies founded by Richard Branson, a spinoff of his Virgin Galactic. Why launch a rocket from an airplane instead of from the ground, uh, apart from it being <laughs> very cool to talk about? Well, one, it's definitely very cool to talk about. Um, some of the technical advantages of being able to have an air launch system uh, is one that we can get away from some weather constraints that typical ground launch rockets have. Uh, we actually took off out of the Mojave Airport and then flew through a cloud layer and dropped the rocket above a set of clouds that would have grounded a lot of traditional ground launch rockets. So oh. we were able to use that flexibility to our advantage. Got it. Uh, we can also get to a lot of different orbits. So the inclination that we got to is the first time that that low of an orbital inclination has been launched from the West Coast because we can fly out over the ocean and then launch it. What do I hear in the background there, Nicole? Where are you? So I'm I'm actually sitting in our factory right now. Our team is uh, hard at work getting the next rockets ready to go to space after our recent successful launch. Okay. So this allows you to get above the weather. That's one advantage. The rocket, as I understand the sequence, drops from the plane and it drops for a few seconds before it starts its own thing, right? To get away from the plane. Yes. Yes. There's about a five second drop time as the rocket falls away from the plane before the engines start up on the rocket. And then I imagine it's something of a challenge to get a rocket that's dropping to all of a sudden be a rocket that's not dropping and, in fact, shooting into orbit. Yes, uh, that was one of the big technical hurdles that our team worked through um, in preparation for our launches. But we've been successful in being able to drop the rocket off of the wing and then have those engines ignite every time. And does that require a lot of fuel? It, it doesn't require necessarily more fuel. It's just making sure that we understand that the fuel is ready to support that engine startup at the right time. At just the right moment. Yeah. And uh, so the, the plane's... It's definitely a critical timing activity. <laughs> Stepping through critical timing is something that we focus on. How do you handle air traffic? Because I'm thinking about this 747, you know, that's at about 35,000 feet, I think. Uh, and, you know, that's an altitude where other, other planes fly. So we work closely uh, with the FAA and other agencies to understand what the air traffic control looks like. And we actually have that airspace cleared for us for the short period of time that we will have our, our drop window available such that we know that there's no other constraints or concerns with launching the rocket at that altitude. Yeah, an important coordination. What was your greatest responsibility day of, Nicole? So my biggest responsibility day off is making sure that everything is ready to go. So there's a lot of final preparations as we do the loading the morning of the launch and making sure that everything is happening on time and successfully to be able to be ready for takeoff. So I am collecting all of the information from all the teams to make sure that the systems are all go or working through any final minor issues to make sure that everything can be prepared. 
I'm desperately curious to know specifically what is being made in the background. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They're putting together some of our uh, rocket tanks and putting together the assembly to make sure that all of the structures are ready to go for our our next vehicle. Rocket tanks like the fuel tanks? Yes, uh, the the propellant tanks and and the structure. (laughs) Oh. Can you theoretically launch from anywhere with a runway? I mean, I don't know. Could you launch someday from Denver International Airport? Yeah. So anywhere that's got a runway that can accommodate a 747 aircraft. Um, So we are are hoping to be able to expand that to more locations, including international locations that or countries that maybe have never had a space launch from their soil before. Hmm. You are a 2011 graduate of Mountain Vista High School in Highlands Ranch. The Golden Eagles. Your degree is in mechanical engineering, and it it seems as if you rocketed to launch director, pardon the pun. (laughs) What's been most important in your advancement, do you think? Um, I definitely think being able to work closely with the team. So I started at Virgin Orbit as an intern um, and have grown up with the system. Uh, So started with the propulsion team, understanding the subsystem details, and then transitioned into working on the integrated testing and really understanding how the rocket works as a whole. And then finally into this uh, launch operations role to be able to uh, support launch day and make sure that everything is ready to go. So I've been fortunate enough to see the rocket at all of its phases of development and Mm. then really understand how it works. And and so do you think that's a question of exposure, of people you met along the way? I mean, what has allowed you to progress in the way that you have? Um, I think it's a a combination of exposure. Um, I think being able to work closely with the team and be able to meet and learn from a lot of different people that have different perspectives and different backgrounds that work here at Virgin Orbit and other space companies and use uh, their guidance and also uh, being able to uh, handle a lot of the pressure and the stress that comes with a, a lot of responsibility of being in the role as well. Uh, your stress tolerance, I imagine, is probably higher than mine. That's just a guess. <laughs> there is an increasing emphasis on encouraging girls and women in science and technology. How would you describe the space industry as a place for women to work right now? I think there's a lot of room, I suppose, for female growth within the aerospace industry, um, but it's definitely a tidal wave that that's starting to make a shift. Um, Mm. There's a lot of young women professionals that are starting to get involved in the industry here at Virgin Orbit and a lot of other space companies. And I'm excited to see that trend continue as they all progress into various management and leadership roles as well. On the cusp of a tidal wave. I mean, you're not mincing words there. Um, Have you met some of these young women? Definitely. Um, The young graduates and new engineers here at Virgin Orbit are absolutely amazing Um, Each year, it feels like there's more and more great young women that are working here and also working across the industry. And I know there's many more that are are studying in college or in high school and are looking forward to joining us um, in aerospace. A pipeline there. Nicole, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Nicole Lewis is launch director for Virgin Orbit, which successfully sent seven satellites into space last week using a rocket dropped from the wing of a 747. Lewis is a Colorado native and graduated from Mountain Vista High School in Highlands Ranch. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. 
We read together in a series called Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. And not only do we read together, we then meet the author. Our latest pick is a novel, a historical mystery called All That Is Secret. A young black professor learns her father has been murdered in 1920s Denver, and the Ku Klux Klan may be responsible. Faith and family drive her despite the risks to her own life. So pick up All That Is Secret. The author, Patricia Raybon, will join us for a virtual event the evening of February 8th. You'll be able to ask her questions, and the tickets are free at CPR.org slash turn the page. That's CPR.org slash turn the page. Hope to see you virtually February 8th. And we'll be right back to shatter a myth, or at the very least a misconception, about cannabis users and lethargy. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Running a restaurant was challenging before the pandemic. For the ones that have survived, COVID's made it even trickier. I'm CPR business reporter Sarah Mulholland. And I'm Ryan Warner from Colorado Matters. We'll bring you a day in the life of a restaurant, from the difficulties of finding servers and broccoli... ...to the juggling act of running a small business while raising a family. Your table is ready on Colorado In-Depth, available everywhere you get your podcasts, and on the Colorado Public Radio app. The new year often brings new promises to exercise more. The thing is, many Americans avoid physical activity, with just 23 percent getting enough according to the CDC. Is it possible that combining exercise with cannabis for adults might rekindle a love for movement? Researchers are studying that. And as the stigma around pot lifts, more athletes are opening up about their own use. Denver journalist Josiah Hesse tells that story in his new book, Runner's High. And welcome to the show, Josiah. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. There is a stereotype that pot users are sedentary and, you know, like suffering the effects of the munchies. But that's really not borne out in the data, is it? No, it's not. And that's something that we're just uh, now coming to understand with the legalization of cannabis. A lot more people who are more ambitious, uh, more in a mainstream career field or lifestyle are admitting that they use cannabis and have been for some time and like to incorporate it with physical activity. Uh, And there's been a number of polls uh, looking at that. Uh, One from Angela Bryant out of CU Boulder, looking at the exercise habits of people living in legalized states. And she found that 80% of respondents were using cannabis before, during, or after their workout. And uh, she's also discovered that cannabis users have lower rates of diabetes, uh, obesity, and are just generally more fit than their sober counterparts. Did that come as a surprise to you? Not for me. Some of the data did, but I've been in the world of cannabis for a long time, reporting on it as a journalist, and then also just being in that world. And I knew that that stereotype was not representative of the people who used cannabis. Uh, It was representative of the people who were out about their use of cannabis. Uh, And these were typically people who had nothing to lose uh, from the world finding out that they use cannabis. They were, you know, not bad people, but somewhat of, uh, you could say, dropouts of society. Uh, These aren't investment bankers. (laughs) Um, But like I said, with uh, legalization, people, you know, like investment bankers or soccer moms or firefighters or all sorts of 
highly active people are admitting that they use cannabis in a variety of contexts. Okay, you mentioned there something subtle, but you said that you're a journalist and you're also in that world. Uh, I think the implication being that you are both a reporter and a consumer of cannabis. Um, That would be accurate. That would be accurate. Is that a tricky balance when you're writing reportage? Absolutely. Uh, I think every journalist has their bias, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you lean into that bias and make it your identity. Some people do, and uh, they make good money on cable news doing that. But I often try to immerse myself in the counterpoints of cannabis detractors and understand where they're coming from and what science they're citing. And what their perspective on cannabis is, the threat of it to society, the threat of it to individuals, and really give them my full unbiased attention. At the end of the day, I disagree with them on a lot of points. I also end up agreeing with them on a lot of points. I think uh, the cannabis industry has a lot of due criticism coming to it. I think cannabis can be used irresponsibly. Uh, I think a lot of the products that are out there aren't necessarily uh, the best way to manufacture cannabis or consume cannabis. So as a journalist, I think it would be unfair of me to say that cannabis is 100% good 100% of the time for 100% of the people. Josiah, you're a runner. Uh, One, I'll say, who hates treadmills. You'd rather be outside running. Uh, Yet you did agree to jump on a treadmill to take part in a, quote, groundbreaking study of cannabis use during exercise. Uh, Why don't you tell us more about the researcher? You've already mentioned her, psychologist Angela Bryan at CU Boulder. Um, Say more about her and what she's trying to learn. Yeah, she has a very fascinating story because she got into the, uh, started researching the subject of cannabis somewhat as a detractor. She was looking at why people don't exercise uh, and what prevents them from exercising. And when legalization came on, Uh, She was concerned that this would lead to more sedentary behavior. Hmm. And the more she looked into it, the more she found that the opposite was true and just started digging deeper into the subject. And the research that she was doing, the study she was doing that I participated in, dovetailed with the sort of themes of my book, which, you know, in addition to all of the physiological benefits uh, that we get from cannabis uh, in terms of anti-inflammatories or reduced muscle spasticity or sleep, there's also a shift in perspective on exercise itself. Quite often, Americans view exercise as a discipline or even a punishment, as Mm -hmm. we've seen in the military, something that you endure for some kind of end, you know, like better health, better fitness, uh, being more attractive. But the research that she was doing and what my research seemed to be showing with people that I was speaking with anecdotally was that cannabis can make exercise more enjoyable, that beyond just uh, the reduction in pain, there's actually a boost in mood. And I don't want to say that this is the conclusions of her studies. Uh, I, I, I don't think they've been published yet. But when I went and consumed cannabis and ran on the treadmill in her lab, They were asking a series of questions um, every five or 10 minutes as I was running on the treadmill. uh, What is my mental state? You know, am I dissociating? Am I engaged? Am I enjoying this? And we did it once without cannabis and once with cannabis. And I could confirm then, as I could with a number of other experiences I've had as a runner, 
that it was just so much more enjoyable under the influence of cannabis, uh, a moderate dose of cannabis, I'll mm. add. Uh, that's very important uh, when using it with exercise. But yeah, uh, just more in the moment, more uh, mind-body connection, more pleasure for the act itself. Uh, even things like a little bit of pain or a little bit of exhaustion can be stimulating in that capacity because you're just so engaged with the activity itself. It's it's not painful. It's quite lovely. And so do you think that sort of research, were it to continue, might be the catalyst for more Americans getting more exercise? I cited those CDC statistics, which are pretty grim. I certainly hope so, because we all have the capacity to enjoy exercise. Uh, evolution has given us this uh, reward system for things like food when it comes to salt, fat, and sugar, uh, or sleep, or sex, or learning, you know, anything from academic research to just being on social media, you're getting information coming at you. And there's a little reward, a little dopamine boost, uh, all sorts of different uh, neurochemistry going on there. But exercise should be in that category. And it's really unfortunate that we have this perspective of it as something that's just grueling. Uh, because we have uh, what's called an endogenous cannabinoid system. I know that's a, a lot to take on, but we all have uh, an endogenous opioid system through endorphins. And we get a what's called a runner's high mm -hmm. after a certain amount of cardiovascular activity. And that's a reduction in pain and an uplift in mood. Runners have been speaking about this for decades. And that's actually a cannabinoid, uh, you know, not unlike THC or CBD, which are found in the plants, cannabis. It's a natural cannabinoid that's in our body that makes us feel really good after a certain amount of exercise. And cannabis has the potential to jumpstart that system, which seems to be dormant in a lot of people. People don't need to be incentivized to eat salt, fat, or sugar, or to go to sleep, or to have an orgasm. That's something that people just naturally pursue without any outside incentives. So if people can engage with their uh, cardiovascular system and endocannabinoid system, I believe cannabis can be a stimulant for that. If they can engage with that, they can just organically enjoy exercise without any sort of discipline or end result. Just enjoy it for the hedonistic pleasures of its own. The, the notion that there are natural cannabinoids inherent to my body, it was just such a revelation when I read in depth about this in your book, Runner's High. And, you know, it just occurred to me that in school I'd learned about uh, the endocrine system and the pulmonary system and heard diddly squat about natural you know, onboard, inborn cannabinoids. Yeah, it's something that's uh, unfortunately been a taboo subject, even though it hasn't really been disputed. Uh, the National Institute of Health decades ago said that uh, the endocannabinoid system is involved in nearly all human diseases. And it's involved in almost all human bodily functions, appetite stimulation, uh, fertility, sleep, mood, there's almost nothing that goes on in our body that isn't influenced in one way or another by endogenous cannabinoids. And yet it was something that was taboo to study because a lot of scientists didn't want their careers defined by this topic because it was in some ways wrapped up in cannabis, which is interesting because studying endorphins, uh, nobody really thought like, oh, you must be into heroin 
an endorphin. <laughs> but uh, even though, you know, endorphins just means endogenous morphine. But for some reason, that was the case with the endocannabinoid system. There was a research, I believe, in 2013 that showed only 9% of medical schools were teaching the uh, endocannabinoid system, which is insane considering the impact it has on all these different bodily functions. Now, that said, it has changed greatly since that survey was taken. And now it is a, a really blossoming field of science, one that's both independent of researching cannabis and one that's integrated with researching cannabis. And as we're sort of shedding the stigma of cannabis in general, uh, hopefully that field of science will be embraced by all sorts of different people. In researching this book, you met a number of endurance athletes, many of them in Colorado, who integrate cannabis into their training. The highest profile might be ultra runner Avery Collins. Uh, You've mentioned the drug's anti-inflammatory properties, uh, its ability to reduce pain. Why does Avery Collins use cannabis? Well, he's certainly not an outlier in that respect, but he is the person I spent the most time with, the ultra runner I spent the most time with on this. And he talks about it in a very mystical way. He's not all that much of a new age woo-woo person, but he speaks of a, a just this pure bliss that comes over him when running. Uh, and he said the same thing that I hear from a lot of ultramarathon runners in that to do that job, you know, to run a 200 mile race through the mountains, you know, uh, there's a lot of numbers that come into play. You have to think about your pace, your heart rate, your calories, uh, your distance, your elevation, and you really have to have a very mathematical approach to that endeavor. But with cannabis, it can allow him to, at least momentarily, particularly in training, I'll add that he doesn't use it in competition, but momentarily set all of that aside, all the ancillary chatter of being a professional athlete and just be immersed in the activity itself, really remind someone why they got into it in the first place. They're loving the trails, they're loving the trees, the sky, the, the feeling in their body of breathing hard, of working your muscles hard, the sort of meditative aspects of your feet, you know, in this consistent rhythm for hours and hours. And then also they speak a lot about endurance running as being, Avery especially has mentioned this, it's a 10% physical and 90% mental. And that 10% physical is important. You have to be in good shape. You have to train hard. Your body's got to be ready, you know, to run up a mountain for a day or two. But so much of it is mental, keeping your confidence up, not getting anxious, not getting paranoid, not getting uh, deterred. Uh, you, you really go into a kind of frenzied mental state after you've been running for that long and you need something to kind of keep you balanced. And that's why a lot of them will bring edibles or a pen vaporizer with them. Uh, Avery doesn't, but I know a lot of people do in the races. Uh, which is taboo and is uh, banned, but it can help calm all that down. And as I said before, get you back into the focus of the act itself. You you did indeed mention that Avery Collins doesn't use during or even close to competitions. Um, Just by way of background, former Denver Nugget Kenyon Martin told the Bleacher Report a while back that about 85% of NBA players use cannabis. Major League Baseball, meanwhile, 
removed cannabis from its list of prohibited substances in 2020. But pot is still a big no-no in golf, for instance. Help us understand, like, where pro sports is on this question. You know, I often ask myself that same question because it changes uh, quite regularly. And I don't think uh, all these regulatory agencies really know themselves exactly where it's at. But basically, there's this governing body uh, called the World Anti-Doping Agency that Every, every uh, you know, the NBA, the MLB, they all have their own policies, uh, but WADA is kind of the umbrella on this issue that regulates or informs uh, a lot of these agencies on what they should do. Mm-hmm. And they have categorized it as a banned substance. They removed CBD from it a few years ago. They changed the amount of THC that's allowed in the system uh, to be a little bit higher. So if people were using, say, during training and they stopped a few days before competition, you know, and a little bit shows up, they're not going to get in trouble for that. But they have uh, three different criteria for what makes a banned substance. You know, it's performance enhancing, so it'll take you beyond your natural limits, or that it's uh, uh, harmful to the body. And then there's a third criteria, which is very vague. It's called the spirit of the sport. It violates the spirit of the sport. And they admit that that's a pretty nebulous term, but a lot of it comes down to being a bad influence on children. Yeah, let me, uh, let me just and, read this quote from WADA. Using illicit drugs is not consistent with the athlete as a role model for young people around the world. Uh, that is a quote that you include in your book, by the way. And what, what do you make of this statement? I think it harkens back to the sort of old drug uh, war on drugs rhetoric about the kinds of people who use drugs or the kind of people who manufacture or sell drugs, that these are inherently bad people. And it's uh, 100% of the time a bad influence on children. But it's just remarkably inconsistent with where we're at today on this issue and others as well, because we don't see alcohol as problematic in any way, as a bad influence on children. And I know most athletes are good people, but they live really wild lives uh, a lot of the time. And uh, they're people who kind of live on the razor's edge of life often, not unlike, you know, say Keith Richards, you know, or Amy Winehouse, who people wouldn't necessarily consider role models for children, but I see these worlds as having a lot of overlap. And the idea that cannabis is going to be harmful for your body. It's definitely not taking anyone beyond their natural limits. I think it does have performance enhancing aspects, but not under that criteria. But the idea that it's a bad influence on children, if somebody takes a, a gummy, an edible gummy before they work out or to you know, bring them into a relaxed state during recovery uh, or for their mental health, you know, and certainly a whole lot of pharmaceuticals aren't banned for their mental health properties, uh, is just, ridiculous or it appears ridiculous to the people who live inside legalized states and have seen the effects of it you know we saw we heard a whole lot of hysteria from people like chris christie about what was going to happen to colorado when legalization came on and and that hasn't come to pass and we have so many states now that are legalized this just doesn't lead to the kind of degradation of a human or of society that a lot of people would claim. And so I just don't think uh, there's any evidence to show that it would be a bad influence on children. Now, you invoked alcohol a bit earlier. And if people are uncomfortable with the rapprochement between exercise and cannabis, you encourage them to think about the ties between sports and alcohol. The Rockies, for instance, play at, name it. Coors Field. Coors Field. Coors Field. 
Uh, you, Josiah, were offered a beer after a race. Share just a few thoughts about that. Well, yeah, it certainly wasn't just the one time that I was offered a beer at the race. Uh, you know, these races are often sponsored by brewers, and some of them will start or finish at a brewery, and they'll give you drink tickets uh, at the end of the race. And it's considered the way to celebrate the finishing of the race, the completion of it. You you want a cold beer, and I don't have any problem with that, but it seems a little inconsistent with this idea that cannabis sets a bad influence for children. And when you look at the cost of alcohol on a human body, on society in general, uh, you know, loss of productivity from hangovers, criminal justice system, domestic violence. I mean, I could talk all day about the harms on society of alcohol. Cannabis really just doesn't compare on that level. And yet we seem to have no problem with integrating alcohol into uh, these marathons or into professional sports and would certainly see no problem with an athlete, you know, after the game in the locker room, opening up bottles of champagne, pouring champagne all over each other. Hmm. Nobody looks at that and says they're setting a bad example for children, you know, even though kids may look at that and think I want to pop a bottle of champagne and, you know, spray it all over myself as well. Uh, it's just something that seems a little inconsistent to me. And there's also a party atmosphere in a lot of the races that I've gone to. I attended uh, Ragnar a number of times, this race in Snowmass, this relay race. And it was like a music festival in the tents below. People were guzzling tequila, you know, beers and getting drunk and then going and running the race. And, you know, that makes it maybe fun for at least a short period of time, but I would think that would make you a terrible runner, but people have no problem with that kind of activity inside races. Given the federal prohibition on marijuana, there's simply a dearth of cannabis research. And Angela Bryan, uh, who we talked about earlier from CU Boulder, you know, she has to have like all these carve outs where she does this research, how she does this research using a bus off campus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's what makes a lot of cannabis research uh, suspect going back, you know, pre-legalization because so much of it or all of it was only allowed uh, to use cannabis grown at the University of Mississippi, uh, which is overseen by the DEA. And they can only grow very low THC, no CBD cannabis that is grown poorly, freeze-dried, ground up with the stems and seeds in it, shipped across the country, uh, rehydrated, and given to people to smoke. And uh, people, especially in Colorado, you know, even before legalization, when we had medical or just anything coming out of the Emerald Triangle in California, would look at this and think, well, this is just horrible. This is garbage. I'm not going to put this in my body. Well, that's going to influence your research uh, dramatically. You know, if all, the only research we had on alcohol was on poorly manufactured moonshine, uh, we would think like, well, that's not consistent with people who are drinking wine or beer uh, at the bar every night. Uh, and so now we have we're getting more research with higher quality cannabis. But you're right. They couldn't use it on the campus because uh, it's still federally illegal. Uh, the university could lose a lot of their federal funding if they were to bring an illicit substance onto the campus and include, uh, allow people to use it. It's actually easier to use cocaine or crack uh, in studies than it is cannabis uh, 
Carl Hart's done some amazing studies uh, with cocaine, but that's a, a Schedule II substance, uh, so it's not as prohibited. But huh. to participate in Angela Bryan's study, I had to go in this van, get my blood drawn, go into someone's house, a friend's house, and consume some cannabis, a type of cannabis that they had picked out for me, but I had to go purchase myself, consume it, go back in the van, get blood work taken, and then speed me off to the university where I would run on a treadmill, you know, hopefully before my cannabis high uh, deteriorates in any way, and then conduct their study there. Uh, so it's a very elaborate, uh, I don't think it necessarily impacted the quality of the research um, because it was such a short distance to the university, but still a strange legalistic pageantry that we all had to go through in order to get the study done. And a lot of uh, universities or a lot of researchers looking at that would think, I'm not even going to deal with that minefield of you know, legalistic uh, jargon, and I'm just going to not research this topic. The book opens and closes with you running the Colfax Marathon in 2015 in Denver, running it while high, quoting you, I was having the time of my life running high through a city that held so much love and memories for me until the chorus took us past the Denver County Jail. Uh, Josiah Hesse, why was that site hard for you? Well, uh, by that time, cannabis had been legalized, but young people were still getting busted for possession. Uh, there's still a whole lot of laws around it, uh, not just for underage people, but for people of all sorts of ages. And a lot of the uh, arrests that were happening and the citations that were happening were still disproportionately affecting people of color. Uh, and that's certainly the case outside of Colorado and states that haven't legalized. Uh, the war on drugs is still very much alive. There are black people in Texas uh, picking cotton in fields, you know, with cops with shotguns watching them on a chain gang for marijuana. This is still happening in America. And to a lesser extent, it is happening in Colorado. But watching that being surrounded by, let's face it, predominantly white people uh, who run marathons and can afford to do that and can afford the lifestyle that comes with it, it was a little unsettling, the disparity, the, the privilege that I felt uh, running in that race, enjoying it so much, and thinking about anyone who may be in that jail for something related to cannabis or certainly something related to the war on drugs. And knowing that I wasn't in that jail largely because of uh, the color of my skin, I would say, because I've, I've certainly engaged in risky behavior when it comes to breaking drug laws. But uh, outside of a night I spent in jail in Iowa, I've never really suffered all that many consequences from it. So it makes it difficult to just lean into the joy of that experience, knowing that so many less privileged people are certainly living lives uh, not nearly so glamorous as, you know, getting stoned and listening to Beyonce while running in the Colfax Marathon. <laughs> what was the Beyonce track? Oh, the Coachella Live album for me, the, okay. the whole way through, I think is just a banger of a running album. This is not a how-to interview, but at the end of your book, you have a how-to chapter uh, in terms of training, exercising with cannabis. But you say that you composed that chapter reluctantly. Uh, I'm curious why you were reluctant to do a how-to. Well, I grew up in the world of evangelical Christianity, where there's a whole lot of how-to, 
with pretty much any aspect of life. And I really didn't want to approach this like the Tim Ferriss uh, five hour work week of, you know, follow me into the sunset, you know, come to my conferences and change your life. I really <laughs> wanted to report on the things that were exciting for me about using cannabis and exercise. And then also all of these people who were using it and the science that was coming out around it. There was just so much fun to dig into. And my editor wanted a how-to chapter, and I pushed against that because I just didn't want to be any kind of uh, stoned athlete guru. But when I thought about it and thought about my journey with cannabis and so many other people's, I realized that if I'm, I need to take on some responsibility uh, for this book, for anyone who's just going to think, okay, if I take a whole bunch of edibles, I'm suddenly going to be able to run a marathon after not running a single mile in my life. That is not true. And it's a dangerous idea for people to get in their heads. And uh, and then there are other things like don't mix it with alcohol. You know, so many people who have bad experiences with cannabis uh, do it at parties when they've had a whole lot of alcohol and then someone hands them a joint and they get dizzy. They get the spins. They get anxious and paranoid and maybe they throw up and they think, well, that's cannabis. I don't want to do that ever again. Well, that's a terrible way to introduce yourself to cannabis. So yeah, it's something that when I think back on my experiences, there was a whole lot that I would have benefited from. And we are mindful, of course, of the age restrictions around cannabis as well in Colorado. Absolutely. Josiah, when you were a kid, you equated athletes with the meathead bullies who taunted you. And that experience really colored your view of team sports and of competition I have to say, I identified a lot with this aspect of the book. Um, I w didn't feel terribly good at sports. I was called a sissy. Uh, and I think it really did shape my perception of movement and exercise. But here with this project for the Book Runners High, you're spending a lot of time with professional athletes and kind of weekend warriors. What gives? Like, how, you know, how was it to expose yourself to that which had traumatized you as a kid? It wasn't fun at first. Uh, I have been covering a variety of subjects as a freelance journalist for a long time. Science, the arts, politics, crime, but never stepped anywhere close to sports uh, for that reason. I I don't go to sports games. I don't, I don't even know what Denver's teams are, to be honest with you. And when I was a kid, yeah, I, I, I was a lot like Bobby Hill from King of the Hill. I was just like very strange and very soft and very weak and couldn't really participate in anything and got teased mercilessly for that and was bullied. And it was very traumatizing and something that stayed with me and colored my view of sports and physical activity. And I think that's a not uncommon story, as, as you mentioned about yourself. But getting into that world, spending time with athletes, getting over the uh, image I had of anyone who exercised or anyone who's into sports or uh, was into competition, that really started to shift uh, the more they were humanized in my eyes. And they weren't mean. They, they weren't cruel. They weren't bullying. They weren't, um, they weren't approaching competition with that toxic mindset of, I need to destroy my competitor. Quite often, there was a kind of camaraderie between them, a camaraderie within competition. And people were uh, challenged to be better in that competition. And I could certainly relate to that. I've seen that in the arts for years and years. 
but also when looking at the stereotypes that people carried about cannabis users, that they're lazy, that they're degenerates, uh, that they're not ambitious, that they're unreliable, and knowing how untrue those stereotypes were, I had to take a second look at my stereotypes about athletes, you know, that mm. they're meatheads, that they're bullies, that they're homophobic, uh, that they're just cruel human beings. Uh, and, you know, realize like, okay, if I'm going to challenge this one stereotype about cannabis users, I really need to challenge my own stereotypes about people into athletics. And that happened organically just through spending time with these people and realizing they're really good, kind, gentle people who have no interest in bullying anyone. And there was actually something about competition that really appealed to me. Josiah, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Ryan. This was delightful. Denver journalist Josiah Hesse. His work has appeared in The Guardian, Politico, and Esquire. His new book is Runner's High, How a Movement of Cannabis-Fueled Athletes is Changing the Science of Sports. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a team that keeps up the pace. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Nell London and Megan Verlee. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Keep her running, cause a waiter don't quit on themselves. Oh!